I want to thank our praise team for reading those questions and thank Mayetta for reading Psalm 24. I think Mayetta should just preach and we could all listen to her accent and go home and be inspired. Oh man, when you come face to face with just the reality of these questions, it's heavy. It's heavy. And the truth is, this was about 30 of, I don't know, 100 or more questions that we gathered about six weeks ago as we started a series on prayer. And as we started asking these questions. And the goal all along, if you've been tracking with us, has been not to try to give you tried answers or easy answers to life's most difficult questions because I don't think that's even helpful or productive. It doesn't help you, it doesn't help me, it doesn't help us in our relationship with God. The goal all along has really been an invitation for you to take those questions, those struggles, those things that you're dealing with in life and to enter into the presence of God with those questions. Again, not to get answers, but just because we believe that it's in the presence of the light of God that we receive the help and the hope and the healing, the transformation that we need. And that's been the invitation all along for us to take these questions, these really hard questions, these difficult questions, and just to, to go and to be with God. So today we have one last question to ask, and it's the question of Psalm 24, and we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. I want to say it's really good to be back with you today. Um, as some of you know, I, me and my family, we've been away for a couple of weeks on vacation. Part of that was vacation. Part of that was just different things that, that we had responsibilities to do, and it sort of culminated with a week in Gulf Shores, Alabama. I don't know how many of you are beach people, show of hands. My, these are my people. You're my people. Um, we can go start a church at the beach if you like. Um, God may be calling us there. Uh, we love the beach. Uh, and we went this year not just for vacation, but because uh, our son had a baseball tournament at, at Gulf Shores. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun to go as well. And if, you, if you've ever had a kid or a grandkid that plays sports, you know how this works. Uh, every parent of every kid or every grandparent of every, every kid who, who plays a sport simultaneously thinks two things when their kid is playing said sport. They think two things. One, they think their kid is obviously the best kid out there, and they don't understand why no one else sees that, right? And two, they think they know what's best. Like, we, we believe that. We believe, you know, in, in our case, with our son and playing baseball, you know, we think, you know, we know where everyone in the field should be playing, you know, what position is best for them. We, we know, or we think we know what's best in terms of which kid should bet where in the lineup. And, and when something happens, we believe we know who should be put in, in this position or this situation. We just think we know. And in our case, I think it's really pretty hilarious because... I'll just go ahead and tell you, I played one year of t-ball. That's my baseball experience. <laughs> um, the, the guy who coaches our team, uh, he played in the major leagues. Like, he's a professional baseball player. You know? So when you stack my credentials up next to his, it's really pretty comical that I think I would know anything about the game of baseball or, or, or you know, anything better than, than he would, you know, in, this, in any given situation. But this is what we do, is it not? This is what we do as people. We, we love to question authority. We love to second guess those who are in charge. It's just what we do. Even if your kids don't play sports, you know, if you watch sports on TV, if you watch the Cowboys, you watch the Rangers, you think you know what's better, right? I mean, you think, you know, man, if I was the head coach, if I was the manager of that team, I would pinch at this guy. I'd put this guy at first base. I'd bet this guy and this, you know, I'd bring this guy in to close the game. I'd, I'd do this or I would do that. We love to Monday morning quarterback because we think we know what's best. And even if you're not into sports, you do this, right? You get to work, you sit around at work with this, those that you work with, and you start to complain and moan about what's going on, and you think, you know, man, if I was in charge around here, you know, 
if I, was, if I was put in charge for the day, this is how things would be different around here. I can tell you right now, I could make it better. I could do this job better. You know, if I was in charge, we love to question authority. We question the authority of those in our government. We question the authority of those in any position of authority over us. We love to second guess and we love to question those in authority. And I think if we're really honest, I think if we're really honest, this gets to the root of so many of our questions for God. We would never say this out loud. But our questions reveal a truth. God, you got it wrong. God, this is what I really need. This is what you ought to do. This is what you got to fix. This is who you got to help. This is what's got to change. God, let me, let me go ahead and tell you right now how things should be different. And we would never say this, but if we were God for a day, boy, oh boy, would our lives get a whole lot better. We would make more money. Our relationships would be through the roof. We'd have all the things we ever wanted if we were God for a day. And if we look at our questions, so many times our questions reveal what is true about us, but we would never say out loud that God... God, man, you're getting this all wrong. From time to time, actually almost on a daily basis, uh, we have to remind our kids at our house um, of, of this simple truth that, that they are not in charge around here. It could be as simple as, hey, tonight instead of tacos, we're going to have spaghetti for dinner, and what happens? Somebody, one of my three kids, my son or one of my two daughters, they're going to get really mad about that, so mad that they're going to sit there and pout all the way through supper, right? Because they didn't get what? They didn't get their way, you know? And we have to remind them, hey, you're not in charge around here. The world didn't revolve around you. You don't get to make all the decisions. It's not up to you. Mom is in charge. Dad is in charge. Really, mom's in charge. Uh, But let's not get into the details. Um, The point is, you're not in charge, right? And this is what is so true of of almost everything that frustrates us or, or, or really just gives us anxiety or angst. It's the simple fact that sometimes we don't get our way. And it's so frustrating, it's so frustrating that, that you're not king. It's so frustrating that I'm not king, that I'm not the king over you, that you're not the king over me. Some of you, this is going to happen immediately after church. You'll get into the car. You've been moved by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, convicted to love God more. And someone will ask the question, where are we going for lunch? <laughs> and all of a sudden, like a heated argument breaks out and somebody gets mad at somebody else. And you go somewhere for lunch, but it's not the place they wanted to go for lunch. And you don't even eat because you're so mad, right? This is, this, this is the way we are. This is how we act. And it's funny, but it's true. It drives us crazy because we're not in charge. We don't always get our way. That's what a king is, right? A king is someone who, who has absolute authority over another. And if we're brutally honest, sometimes we just wish we were the king. We wish we were in charge. And that's the question we want to ask today. And, and this isn't a question for God. We're done asking God questions. The last six weeks, we've been asking God questions every single week. Today, I have a question for you. And it's a question you have to answer. Everyone, every one of us has to answer this question. It may not be a question that you've wrestled with in prayer before, but until you wrestle with this question, your prayers won't make sense. Until you answer this question, none of the questions you ask God will even make sense. And it's a question we have to answer whether you believe in God and follow Jesus or not. Everyone has to come to terms with this question, and it's a real simple question. Who really, who 
Who's the king of your life? Who is the king of your life? And if you are a believer in God, if you are a follower of Jesus, then what does life look like if God truly is your king? It's a Psalm 24. Mayetta just read it beautifully. It's a Psalm of David. David, who, by the way, was a king. David wrote these words in Psalm 24. He says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him, for he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean's depths. I love the way David begins this psalm. In the original language, he he doesn't begin with the earth. He begins with the word Yahweh. He begins with the name of God. Because for David, everything begins with God. Everything begins with Yahweh. Nothing, Nothing begins or ends or has its meaning or being without Yahweh. So so David begins with this word, Yahweh, the earth is yours and everything in it. He begins by, by naming and declaring God's identity as the creator and sustainer and beginner and the one who holds all things together. This is who God is and this is where we begin. God is the creator and the center of everything. And this week, as I was kind of going back over this, it made me think, what would, what would this be like? What would this psalm be like? This is a crazy thought, I know. But what would it be like if, if this psalm had been written without a belief in God? The earth belongs to no one. The world and those who dwell in it have no creator, no sustainer, no owner, no beginner. No one holding all things together. No one founded the earth upon the seas. And no one established it upon the ocean depths. What was a beautiful psalm just turned into a really depressing story, didn't it? And that's because. It's because when we acknowledge God's identity as our creator, as the beginner, as the sustainer, as the owner of everything, then we, we find our identity. It's when, we, it's when we come to understand who God is that we come to understand who we are. And this is what David does for us. This is what David does for us. He reminds us of God's primary identity as the creator of it all. And then he says this. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies, they will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people, such people may seek and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. David begins with this declaration of who God is, but then he moves to this idea of who you and I are called to be. We are called to be the kind of people that ascend the hill of the Lord. We are called to be the kind of people who get to dwell in the presence of Yahweh, of the Almighty God, of the one who began it all. That's who we are, and that's who we are called to be. Again, it's, it's, in, it's in God. It's when we decide and declare who God is that we decide and discover who we're called to be. And David says, God is the creator, and we are called to, be, to, to go into and dwell in his presence. This is who we are. 
This is who we're called to be. People who have clean hands and pure hearts. People who live different because we have a different kind of God. This is who we are. This is who we are called to be. And then David says this. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the king of glory. So often, so often in these ancient times, what would happen after a, a king had a great conquest where he would come back to his city with his army in a great procession and, and they would enter the, 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 the gates of the city and people would gather around the streets and there would be a huge parade and they would be shouting and, and, and songs of celebration and praise because the king, the victorious king, had come back to his city as the champion, as the victor. And they were the victors because of this great conquest. And this here is a picture of who God is. David begins with, a, with God as creator. Then he, he moves into who we are called to be as his creation. And then he identifies God as the king and not just the king, but the king of glory. The king strong and mighty. The king invincible in battle. The king who is mighty to save. And it begs the question, is this king your king? Who is, who is your king. And is it this king? Everybody has a king. Who is your king? And is it this king? Is it the king of glory? There's an old baseball movie called Bull Durham. It's ancient now, but there's a great scene in it. Kevin Costner plays this catcher named Crash Davis. And he's brought over to this AAA team to work with this, this new young pitcher who's cocky and immature but he can throw a baseball a million miles an hour. And, and they think if they can just get someone to help him, like actually throw a strike, this guy could go to the majors and make a real difference and win championships and all this great stuff. And so Crash Davis is brought over to work with Nuke Lelouch, this young pitcher, right? The problem is, is that Nuke Lelouch is really, he's uncoachable. He won't listen to anyone. He thinks he's got it all figured out. The truth is he's got nothing figured out. And so they get into the game and, Crash Davis, the catcher, is calling pitches, and Nuke Lelouch keeps shaking them off. He's like, I don't want to throw that. I don't want to throw that. He's, tra- he's calling his changeup. He's calling his curveball. And whatever he calls, he didn't want it. And so finally, the catcher, Crash Davis, calls timeout. He walks out to the mound. You've seen this scene a hundred times. And, and he talks to the, this young pitcher. He says, what are you doing? Why do you keep shaking me off? He's like, I want to throw the heat. I want to throw my fastball. He's like, you can't throw your fastball. This guy's a fastball here. You throw your fastball, he's going to knock it out of the park. No, I can throw it. I'll throw a fastball right by him. And so finally, Crash Davis says, all right, you do it. Throw your, throw your fastball. Crash Davis, the catcher, walks back, takes his position behind the batter. And as he takes his crouch, he tells the batter, hey, he's throwing a fastball. <laughs> Nuke Lelouch throws the fastball. What happens? Batter kills it, crushes it out of the park. Nuke Lelouch is devastated. He's like, what happened? How did he hit that fastball? Crash Davis, the catcher, takes a, a new ball from the umpire and walks back to the mound and Nuke Lelouch is just shaking his head like, I can't believe that you're saying. He's like, he's, like, he's like, Crash, it's like he knew what was coming. Crash said, he did. I told him. <laughs> I told him you're going to throw a fastball. And he walked back and took this position behind the batter again. This happened a couple more times. And finally, Nuke Lelouch discovered that he couldn't shake off his catcher. That he had to throw the pitchers the catcher was calling. And as soon as he gave up 
that control, as soon as he gave up that control, started listening to his catcher, his career took off. Some of you have been shaking off your catcher for a long time. You know what God wants you to do. And the hard truth is you simply will not do it. And I'm here to ask you today to let God have control of your life. Some of you, God is asking you to be faithful in your marriage. God is asking you to be faithful to your kids. He's asking you to be faithful to this church. God is asking some of you to be faithful in your finances. He's calling some of you to be faithful in the middle and through your sickness. He's calling you to be faithful in the middle of whatever difficult situation you're going through. And it's this belief and this trust that you and I have that no matter what it is, God is going to work all things out for our good, but more importantly, for his ultimate glory. The question is, will you let God be your king And will you do whatever it is he's asking you to do today? Some of you, God, he's asking you to say, I'm sorry. Some of you, God is asking you to forgive somebody that you just can't seem to forgive. God has a calling on your life, and chances are you know what to do. You just keep shaking it off. And God wants to be your king. God wants to be your king. And here's the truth. It's a simple truth. But the king who reigns in you will also reign over you. Because Here's what we do, right? We come in here and we sing these songs that the DJ and our praise team, they stand up here and they lead us in these, these anthems of praise to God as king. And we ask him to be the Lord of our life. But the truth is, we're the king of our hearts. And as long as you are the king of your heart, he can't be the Lord of your life because the king who reigns in you will also reign over you. And you have to decide who's going to be your king. And if it's going to be King Jesus, if it's going to be God, then then he has to be king of all of your life, not just part of your life. You know, when my son was little, I loved being the head coach of his baseball team. Some parents came to me, we were playing rec ball, and they said, hey, will you coach, you know, the team? I was like, sure. I always laughed and told Alicia, if the parents knew how little I knew about baseball, they wouldn't let me coach. But I knew swing hard, run fast, and that got us through, you know, six, seven-year-old baseball. And I told Will all along, it's like, at some point, your ability to play baseball is going to exceed my ability to coach baseball. And at some point, I won't be able to do it anymore. And the truth is, I don't want to be his coach. I want the guy who's played baseball all of his life to be his coach. I want the guy who played in the College World Series. I want the guy who played AAA ball and made it to the major leagues. That's the guy that I want coaching my son in baseball. You don't want to be the king of your life. You want the one who pitched the perfect game. You want the one who conquered death. You want the one who defeated sin. You want the one who lived, who died, and who rose again. That's who you want to be the king of your life. If you're the king of your life, let me tell you, you're living for too small a king and too small a kingdom. You want Jesus who is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. You want Jesus, the one who is and was and and is to come, to be your king. You want Jesus, the one who, who literally holds the whole world in his hands. Jesus, the one who rose again, who ascended to heaven, who and who will one day come again. That's who you want to be your king. 
If you're the king of your life, you're living for too small a king and too small a kingdom. Some of you, you're living your life for, 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 for the king, but you're living it only for assurance. All you want is kingdom assurance. You want, you want to live your life in such a way that you're Christian enough that you'll go to heaven. But God, the king of kings, Jesus, the Lord of lords, he wants to call you into kingdom advancement. He wants you to be on the move. He wants you to follow him where he's going because he's king and he's on the move. I know we picture him seated on the throne, and he is. But Jesus is on the move in the world around us. And he's calling us as kingdom people, as people who have given our lives to him, as people who, who not just sing songs that say that he is the king of kings, but who own that and accept him as the king of kings to follow him. And some of you this week, your next step is to stop it. Stop trying to be king. Stop trying to be in control of everything. Lay it down. And the next step is to make Jesus king. To do whatever it is he's asking you to do and to trust him in the middle of that and just see what happens when you trust and you do what Jesus says do. See what happens. Take him at his word. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, those first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's these red letters in most of our Bibles, and, and, and we believe those are the words of Jesus. Just read those words, and whatever he says, do, do it. And see what happens. Church, if you would, let's stand together. I'm going to invite DJ and the worship team to join me on stage as we close. This psalm, Psalm 24, this psalm that pictures the king of glory entering into a city victoriously, it really reminds me of another story of another king. It reminds me of the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, albeit. And people sang Hosanna, and they laid down their robes on the ground and palm branches in front of him to walk on. And the name Hosanna, the, the name they gave Jesus that day, it literally means save Please. And Jesus would save them, but not the way they thought. Because the one they cried out, Hosanna, would be crucified on a cross with a sign above his head that read, King of the Jews. And make no mistake about it, he was a king. But not just of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the universe. He's the king that was killed on a cross on Friday and rose from the grave on Sunday, and he's the king that we worship today. But this king of glory, King Jesus, the one who is strong in battle, the one who is invincible, the one who is mighty to save, he will not force his way into your heart and life. In Revelation 3.20, there's a guy by the name of John who, who wrote this passage. He was a friend and a disciple of Jesus, and he said this of Jesus, that I stand at the door and knock. The king of glory won't force his way into your heart. He wants you to open the door for him to come in. And some of you, maybe what God is asking you to do today is to let him come in. I'm going to invite our shepherds and their wives to just make their way around the room as we sing this next song. If you need prayers, if you need help, if you need someone to, to pray over you and to help you ask Jesus to be king again, come into your life and to take his rightful place as the throne of your heart and as the Lord of your life, then I'd love to invite you to do that, to take that step and to 
to have somebody pray with you and pray for you. If for some reason you're here and you've never asked Jesus to be your king, you've never stepped into the waters of baptism and claimed him as the king of your life, the Lord of your life, man, we'd love to talk to you about that today. You can come to any of those guys or come find me or anybody, really. And we'd love to have that conversation as well because Jesus is the king. The question is, will you let him be your king? Let's sing.